The Kern Institute Podcast Network. Anyone for some vocal warm-up exercises? Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. That's pretty good. My son is enrolled in a creative drama class, and uh, I don't get to watch the class. I have to be out of the classroom, but I can still hear what they're saying. So I get to hear them going through their their vocal warm-up exercises and other things. Sounds very fun. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Medical Education Matters. We are thinking about Halloween, which is coming up here in the United States on October 31st. Are there other countries that celebrate Halloween on October 31st? I don't know. I should look into that. I don't know about Halloween. I know it's becoming a bigger thing uh, worldwide. Is more of like an adult type thing, but there's always Day of the Dead. and. Oh, yes. Very true. You know. Well, anyway, we're thinking about scary topics here, and we wanted to think about scary things related to teaching. There are a lot of things one has to do as an instructor, as a teacher, that can seem scary at first. So we want to talk about some of those things, maybe relate some of our own experiences, scary times we've had, and then talk about ways to handle those things, make them unscary. I'm uh, Michael Brown, and I'm joined by my usual uh, podcasting partner, Anita Bublik-Anderson. Greetings, everybody. And I am also so excited that we get to talk to Jim Warpinski, who is a doctor and faculty member at the Medical College of Wisconsin's Green Bay campus. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Michael and uh, Anita. Welcome from Green Bay. Jim, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, before we jump into our Halloween conversation. Oh, sure. Uh, well, after a career in pediatrics and then allergy and asthma care, I joined the faculty here in Green Bay uh, at the outset when the school was first formed and have been teaching um, in a variety of classes uh, in all three years or four years now um, uh, on a number of subjects, some of them my own, but some uh, outside of my area of prior training or expertise. Ooh, we're going to get into that as a particularly scary topic in a little bit. Um but first, Jim, I want to get into the scary thing that, that you brought to us. Uh, so the scary thing, the first thing we're going to talk about is technology trouble. I think technology is already a scary thing for many of us. Even when we feel like we're very prepared, we also come to rely on that technology, perhaps a little too much, which can be scary. And in a dark and stormy classroom, when all of a sudden technology fails us, what do we do? Our heart starts racing the students look at us with horror in their eyes as our technology fails us. Jim, this just happened to you. You were just telling us a story before we started recording. What happened when technology failed you? Well, so so in giving a lecture to a large group of, um, you know, these are healthcare professionals, um, uh, uh, physician assistants and nurse practitioner level, as well as students, um, <clears throat> I was prepared to, to do a, a lecture uh, with a full set of slides, which uh, complements that. And uh, at the first slide, the bulb on the projector burned out and there was nobody handy to fix that. Uh, and there I was with uh, well over 100 people alone on the stage um, and had to basically improvise and deliver the entire lecture, uh, basically saying, if you could see the first slide, this is what it would say. If you go to the next one, please. And I think what it did is it disarmed the, the situation. 
But what made it possible was basically knowing the content and, and preparing, and I tend to over-prepare even so that any eventuality like that could handle. That idea of preparation is a really key thing for being able to handle those types of technology troubles. If you're dependent on the slides for exactly what you're going to say, in other words, I was going to read directly off the slide, but having it up on the big screen, I thought there would still be a dynamic presentation there. And then all of a sudden you can't see it. You're left at the lectern looking down and having a hard time engaging, but that preparation can help in that case. Anita, have you ever had a, a technology failure that that really uh, brought brought fear into your heart? Yeah, like I've I've had that issue with computers, not so much like back in the olden days, you know, before we had like PowerPoints, right? So um, where we had to give like in residency, like, uh, you know, 30, 20, 30 minutes sort of presentation on a topic, like it was written down, it was analog, but then, you know, not understanding tech myself and knowing like confidently between like what is on the lectern, what how do you connect? How do you make sure it's all compatible? And like, how do you navigate it? Like I've had those issues. I mean, certainly this has happened in the OR when like, oh, guess what? The robot like just broke and uh, guess we're going to have to convert to a different kind of surgery. And it's just like, okay, you know, this is going to take a little longer. Um, and then you just have to kind of pivot and have a really good idea in a, in a classroom setting of like how to spin on it and just allow yourself some grace to, you know, sail and get through. Yeah. Asking for grace from students in these cases, I think is a really important one. I mean, how about some of the most basic type of technology failure? You're in a room with uh, whiteboards and you pick up the one available marker and you realize it is out of ink and you do yeah. not have another marker. Yeah. That's uh, teaching for me. Oftentimes I would try to use a, a blackboard or a whiteboard. Uh, and I was entirely dependent on that extremely basic technology, but then trying to figure out, oh, well, how do I take notes from the students? How do I, yeah. how do I highlight and outline the conversation that we're having so that we can all see it together? Mm -hmm. And of course, I, I think mm -hmm. students can be extraordinarily understanding when these types of things happen. Or not. <laughs> well, that only makes it scarier. But it sounds like Jim Jim just had like his own little TED talk happen like spontaneously in that that uh, episode where like the light bulb burned out. Because then it's like you don't have you know TED talks. You don't really have any props. Like you're just on a red dot, no notes. Well, Jim, your preparation carried you through, and it sounds like that's one of the key things for all these things, um, especially preparing for surgery when the robot breaks. Uh, let's hope you're prepared to do it another way. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on from technology. I've got another scary situation for you to consider here. You're heading into the classroom. You've prepared as best you can, but you know you're about to speak on a topic that is not your area of expertise. Maybe you've had knowledge of that area in the past, but now it, it feels ancient. It's been so long. Maybe it's simply an area where your knowledge comes from the couple of books you reviewed prior to giving the lecture, but not really from anything else. And all of a sudden, you're about to present that information, and you're thinking, the worst thing that could happen would be a curious student who wants <laughs> to know more. 
because this sounds I don't like think... really personal, Michael. Like, what happened? <laughs> okay, okay, I'll I'll fess up. There's a story here. After I finished grad school, I spent a couple years working as a visiting assistant professor at a really small uh, university. And uh, as a visiting professor, I was there to teach whatever subjects they needed to offer that they didn't have someone else to cover. One of those subjects was public relations. I don't need any hands or fingers to count the number of classes that I had on public relations because the answer is zero. So I had a textbook. <laughs> I had some resources that I'd found online. And I was there somehow to teach both introduction to public relations and advanced public relations uh, wow. in subsequent semesters. And is there undergraduate students? Undergraduate students, um, many of whom were majoring in communication because that was a professional path that they saw for them so that their work could be in, in public relations. That was very scary. And I... I think I would do a better job now than I did at the time because of the experience of having to teach something that I knew because I'd reviewed the resources that were available to the students, uh, but not from any personal experience and not from any advanced education. It was very scary. What was scary about it? It was the fear of students asking questions that I couldn't answer and mm -hmm. feeling like I owed the students some degree of expertise that I, that I completely lacked. Whereas I complete, in, oh yeah, I totally. Uh, yeah, other areas, I, of course, I do have expertise. You know, you want to talk about uh, children and media. Great. I know a lot about that. Uh, but this, just just uh, that own sense of, of failure that I felt was following me around as I walked into that classroom every day. So, um, you know, I'm trained in, in gynecology, most recently in, in, in practice was OBGYN. And like, on our campus with like limited faculty and, oh, let's just throw COVID in there where we, you know, and our budgets are, you know, minimized and not bringing people on campus and our core faculty. Like we were asked to do a lot of things that like outside of my like scope of practice, like really. So recently it was like advanced cardiovascular exam. And it's like, all right, I'm here right along with you. Like, this is what you'll see in a cardiology office. <laughs> and, and the materials were confusing to me after study. And so it was like a lot of grace and just like being completely transparent in like where my skill set lies and my purpose for being there. And maybe I could contribute something and let's just learn together. Um, that's how I, I dealt with that, but I, I've encountered that situation quite a lot. Like when we're teaching public exams, deliveries, you know, how to, you know, call a consult on the phone, like I'm your gal, but I'm not the advanced cardiovascular exam experts, <laughs> full disclosure. Well, I had something, uh, uh, in that same fashion. Um, uh, so I trained in pediatrics. And uh, uh, because we needed uh, someone to cover a, uh, a third year internal medicine uh, case discussion, um, uh, I was some other one who got to do that. And, and so to prepare, I had done a lot of background reading. You know, this is something I hadn't seen or heard of since thought about since medical school days um, and tried to get what I thought was the best, uh, best way of supporting that. Um, 
and then shared that um, with the students um, only to find that that whatever I had read, there was something even more current uh, in terms of an approach to all of this. So that's the best, you can only do your best uh, with that. And and the thing was to, to point out, uh, I guess, that th things change. And this is something that we're all gonna experience when you think you know it, and there's, um, there's newer stuff. So um, being open to the students and saying, okay, so teach me uh, what the latest thing is. I like that suggestion of emphasizing that we're all here to learn together uh, and and being open about our own lack of expertise. Oh, yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Do you think do you think that students will respect you more if you are upfront about what you don't know or if they come to suspect that you don't know something over time? Which do you think is better? Well, for, for me, at least, it, um, I have found it better to basically acknowledge my uh, my limitations um, rather than to try to uh, sort of gloss over it or, or uh, dismiss it uh, and hope that they don't find out. It'll uh, never work. Because, uh, <laughs> because it, <laughs> they will find out. Oh, anyway. <laughs> uh, so we are yeah. decidedly... Uh, opposed to the old uh, fake it till you make it uh don't fake it but you will make it if you all I, work together yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna fake it i like it well you know mm -hmm. one of the downsides of faking it brings us to our next scary thing and this perhaps is the is the scariest the most tangibly scariest uh of all the dissatisfied student or even the angry student something has happened in the classroom maybe it's related to grades maybe it's related to how something was presented and it has led a student to become disappointed or or even angry part of our job as teachers is to deal with some of the emotional consequences of things including giving students tools for dealing with their own emotional consequences but i suspect we've all had experiences where we've encountered disappointed or angry students. Um, I remember I remember one very early in graduate school where a student had misunderstood an assignment. And so I had graded her assignment poorly. And this led her to be felt personally hurt and, and question my own judgment. Like, how could I have given her this grade? Didn't she? I see that she had written a really good paper. And the paper was fine. It just had nothing to do with the assignment. Um, so that was that was an early introduction to me to the emotional reactions that can come when one is put in a position of power of assigning grades. Um, either of you have a have a good, scary, disappointed or angry student story? Oh, yeah, I do. But uh, it was like and I recognize the sort of the emotion in the room. And for me, it was just mostly dismay. It was like, what's happening here? Like there's some sort of a coup going on. Like I lost the room mm. and it was like, okay, what's happening. And then there was just a lot of like fallout from that and, you know, multiple meetings and like debriefings and like, you know, it kind of came down to like kind of protocol and procedure and like how, like the skill of delivering feedback and how it's really, it's like a two-way street. Well, I can, I can identify Anita with uh, getting, getting negative feedback with uh, 
sometimes uh, students will come up with comments about a course session. Uh, uh, something happened to me early on uh, in my career with MCW. We got feedback from a, a session that had been, I guess, nine months earlier. Um, it was anonymous. It wasn't sure which session, and it wasn't clear what the specific issue was, other than that it was very negative and uh, and called into question my capacity to be teaching in that particular setting. And yeah. when you're yeah. been when there, you're early, yeah, when you're early on in your, in your career in teaching, whether you're coming from practice like I did, or whether you're maybe coming from training, um, uh, it's very hard to to know how do you appreciate. Or how do you take feedback um, that is basically all negative um, and has no uh, no redeeming value? But you know, I wanted to just comment, if I could, about um, knowing you said about going into a room of uh, where where it's you can just feel the vibe. I I was asked to um, I was actually on a uh, an international mission trip teaching at a medical school uh, with some other faculty people from around the country here. And um, going into this room, there were about probably 75 students. And I was going to give a talk that I knew absolutely cold. It was my area of expertise and that um, in, uh, in food allergy for me. But um, in the front row across the entire uh, auditorium were the faculty for these students. And they were all of them basically sitting with their arms crossed with this scowling look um, <laughs> as though, why do we need somebody from America to come to our system and, and talk? And, um, and I, I sort of realized, um, and just before the talk, I got a call from the director of the hospital who said, could you uh, drop everything and come to my office? I want you to, to check something out. And it was a member of the hospital staff's child that had a food allergy. And, and so um, uh, here I was with this scowling group and, and that, and um, with the permission of the, of the mom, we brought the child into the, into the lecture hall and basically did the entire lecture with the mother of the child. Uh, and, um, and it diffused this whole situation because no one had ever seen that. Um, but it was just a matter of knowing the audience. And sometimes as a teacher, you have to know, uh, you have to know where your students or your group is coming from. Um, and I guess for us on a more practical basis, sometimes they're just at the end of some long stretch of exams or very difficult things. And then we come in not knowing that and might have different expectations. So know your audience. I guess that's my lesson. Well, and find ways to make connection, it sounds like as well, that by finding ways to relate, finding ways to understand each other, perhaps you take someone who's feeling angry about something or disappointed about something and turn them into an ally uh, as they see ways to to partner with you and see opportunities for them to enhance their learning in a way that they perhaps didn't expect. I think also in, in our education system, we do have resources, too, for dealing with a student who's angry. You know, there are paths for them to escalate their complaint. And as much as we as much as we want to placate the student, connect with the student, sometimes steering them toward those other resources and giving them that outlet 
for what they're feeling, that recourse uh, can be beneficial. That's probably its own scary thing. Like, why don't you talk to the chair of the department or why don't you talk to, you know, this person in academic affairs or student services or whatever the chain is at your particular institution? It's scary to imagine them going there. But it's also a, a situation where when someone is asked to explain what upset them so much to a neutral third party, I think it can sometimes diffuse those emotions pretty quickly. They start to hear what made them upset the way that someone else is hearing it or understand how someone else would see that situation. And all of a sudden, whatever it was that really sparked their upset and anger starts to feel maybe a little, little less serious in that context. Well, then uh, uh, to add a second layer of scary to the scary, then you're assuming that there would be a mature process and system that's ba fair and balanced. If you don't have that, then it becomes more scary. That's true. Not feeling like you can trust uh, folks in administration leadership within your institution um, that was definitely another scary situation, scary part of teaching. Maybe I could amplify on that. I, I had a situation. Um, we do reflective writing in my course. And uh, one of the students wrote a reflective piece that um, they're not graded necessarily, but, but I do assess them. And it just demonstrated a real lack of sort of maturity and thinking about the vulnerable population that we were uh, addressing. And, um, and what was scary to me was to think that if I didn't do something, having seen that, um, that that student might just continue to develop sort of uh, an attitude that we really aren't trying to encourage. So I uh, I referred it uh, up the up the chain, and um, the feedback I got was that it went very well with the student, and I mean the student eventually did quite well um, you know, with things, but uh, it's. Uh, it's a little scary to think that that we have uh, we have a role to play in helping to shape the, uh, the approaches of our students. I've dealt with the exact same thing when teaching public speaking. Students have to do one speech often that gives you know some kind of persuasive argument, and students, as you might imagine, choose a wide array of topics from the very silly, which sometimes turn out to be the absolute best speeches, all the way to the very serious. But there's a risk that a student will choose a topic and say, I want to persuade people of whatever, when you know, one, the topic may not go over very well with their classmates. Two, the evidence to support that particular position is lacking, which means they're probably going to do poorly on everything in the speech except for their delivery, because they won't be able to create, you know, find the appropriate uh, sources to support the argument, whatever. But you end up in a situation where you start thinking, okay, I need to talk to this student in a way that allows them to understand how this will go poorly, even if it means wading into subject matter and other things where the, the student appears highly invested and perhaps is already thinking somewhat combatively, which is what led them to propose that topic in the first place. Um, this actually transitions us really well to our next scary thing. This is one, Jim, that you had suggested. Having to challenge long-held beliefs. Sometimes those long-held beliefs are things that are held by students or even things that are held by the general population, just assumed to be true. 
Sometimes it may be long-held beliefs that we ourselves have that we are starting to see challenged based on uh, what's coming out in the literature, how our knowledge is is changing, how our experiences are starting to lead us to question things we've long thought to be true. Anytime we're dealing with those things, it's another one of those times where our heart starts beating. Perhaps we're feeling like we're moving out of our area of core expertise. Perhaps we're worried about angry students. Uh, but having to offer those challenges can be a really scary thing. Either of you have an example of a time you've had to challenge a long-held belief in your teaching? Um, maybe I'll start with this. It's actually uh, it's actually two parts, if I could. The first was with uh, students who who um, I was uh, teaching them how to do a slide presentation as part. Of, they had to do a project for the course in small groups and then do a little presentation, like for seven to 10 minutes. And the students said, you know, we don't really need your help doing a PowerPoint presentation because we've been doing these since like middle school. So, so like, what do you have <laughs> to offer <laughs> or something like that? So this was their long held belief. Um, and um, yes, in my own way, I said, well, we've all been through lectures that maybe don't work for us. Um, and so let's take a look at your slides once. And, and, uh, and as we got started, just imagine yourself in the back of the room when there's 17 lines of text. How, how, do, you like, how, do, you, how do you like that? So maybe let's talk about how we can change that. You know. And um, by the end of it all, the students, uh, it actually, we, we made it actually a, a sort of a required part of the course uh, because it was so valuable. Uh, but it was good to have challenged theirs. My my personal challenge, though, is it's very fresh, and so uh, I'm still processing this. But um, we're we're having a class on uh, uh, racial and ethnic inequities in healthcare, and um, you know, I I think we all hear about concepts of systemic racism, and and think, oh, that must be something that happens like in some other city or some other place, um, but. Uh, one of my speakers said, I think you could do better with your videos for this session than what you've been doing in the past. So I love my videos that I was showing, but I said, oh, uh, show me what else you have. And watching that, I learned that um, when we do uh, lung function testing, we're adjusting the results by race, when in fact, um, there's, it's now very clear that that's a mistaken way of doing things. And so we're and so uh, I spent a whole career just following the official guidelines in which that takes place. Now to realize that uh, that was mistaken. And so to challenge my own uh, understanding and to realize that without knowing or thinking about it, um, I was actually part of that. But then to say, okay, so I'm gonna teach that and, and um, come out in front of the students next week and say, listen, this is what, this is something that can happen to any of us when we, uh, when we follow things and we have to be open to that. So that's, it's really uh, hard too to like get back to that origin story, you know, that like history of medicine and like how it came to be. And a, a lot of this is sort of coming about, wouldn't you say, Jim? I think so. And, and then, then the more I researched it, the, the more fascinating it became to, to realize that the origin of this particular concept actually goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson. You know, I mean, 
for like way over 200 years, long before spirometry was even invented. Um, and how people made assumptions based on the values that they wanted, like they decided on the end result and then they made it on a way to justify mm -hmm. uh, understanding that. Yeah, so it's that's why the history of medicine can be so instructive. Yeah, I wish we had more of that. I mean, like you and I are both like medical humanities sort of affectionados mm -hmm. and like we're gonna continue to lobby, right, Jim? Absolutely. One thing that we encounter, um, regarding long-held assumptions. At least once a year when my husband comes onto campus and he talks about, you know, dentistry and like oral health. He also talks about airway and breathing and sort of the consequences of these long-held beliefs in practice of dentistry in the United States on orthodontia. And what does, like, what is our gold standard for what you want somebody's teeth to look like? And the gold standard, it goes back to a cohort of white males in Indiana and, and a, a dentist who, who established that that is the gold standard of like how it's all supposed to line up and what it's supposed to look like. Unfortunately, not everybody has the same sort of bony structure and face and like anatomy as that. And so if we are um, calling that our, our goal, and then we're modifying somebody's teeth in order to reach that goal, and it doesn't align with um, their best capacity for like breathing, it messes up a lot of stuff. And he sees that result a lot mm. with um, pain, with um, disordered uh, breathing, it's, it's really remarkable. And it's like, seriously, like that's, that, that's the consequence of like what we're trying to hold up. And I, you know, what can be, what's been scary for me and it continues to be as like my paradigms get kind of shattered um, with my own, I don't know, I don't know, wisdom. What do, am I old enough to be wise? Absolutely. <laughs> for sure. And young enough too. Yeah, maybe. So when I think about like things I would just take for granted of like, oh yeah, sure. Um, you know, uh, birth control pills. Yeah, no problem. They're totally safe and, and like encouraged and, um, but what are options and like, what's a, how, you know, what is consent? What is informed consent? How do I utilize that in, working with patients and you know how do i use language that is inclusive how do i like like the way i was trained that this this was was not part of our vernacular at all like no um bodies were sort of physical objects and not attached to like a person and a life and um so like really in a way that was very considerate. So I find that scary. I look back at like how, you know, these long held beliefs of, of persons and autonomy and culture and um, sort of wisdom in, in traditional practices of different cultures, long held practices that were um, like systematically removed from um, healing practices and acceptance and just sort of the wipeout of like Native American culture and wisdom. And, you know, it's just, I, it just keeps uncovering more and more. And, um, and I think about 
the origin of, of gynecology, which is scary. Nothing short of scary and and, and uh, removed from like the centuries of wisdom that women brought into like bring life into the world with midwifery and how that wasn't even something that I was made aware of in any of my training. So, um, but it's coming, it's like there, you know, I think we're at a, a, maybe a tipping point where some of this is becoming sort of explored more in like traditional Western medicine. So it sounds like part of the way to remove the element of fear from these things, from having our long standing beliefs held or needing to challenge them and others is to tell the story of how we got to those beliefs in the first place. Now, that might be a bit of a scary tale to tell, because when you start looking at the evidence that was used to support certain practices, um, yeah. Jim, like your example, uh, you find, wow, that evidence just isn't there. And of course, this is not limited to medicine. This is limited to so many areas of expertise uh, in all kinds of fields. When previously held theories or ways in which human beings behave in certain situations and the reasons why are starting to be uncovered and say, this doesn't really speak to the whole population. It doesn't really represent the whole vast diversity of human experience. Yeah. And then you got to ask, like, why are we still doing it? Like, why is this still happening? How come we don't know? Like, how come this isn't discussed or talked about? Maybe it's just, it's too challenging to like challenge the paradigm yeah. and then we're going to need to change it. And then, so like culture changes and like, who's in charge, who says what is truth. And if you have to tell the whole story, that also takes longer than simply- takes a long time. And then it's confusing. So how does a, a learner like stepping into that space is going to be overwhelmed? And so so I find it scary knowing this to think, how how do I teach this? You know, what examples can I use that the students can I can identify with? Um, what uh, what illustrations? What for, for me, it's the humanities. So. Where, where in the humanities can I find something that will grab them and grab their attention enough so that they can get to the point? Because just talking about these things, people have been talking about them for a long time and they still haven't quite resonated. So oh, I love that idea as a way to make a connection and understand things. Um, reading about the experience of someone else who had this sort of awakening or had their beliefs challenged and being able to process our own emotional reactions by reading and understanding the emotional reactions of someone else. A really cool idea. Well, let's touch on our last scary thing. And this is uncomfortable learning situations. Sometimes we know we learn best by doing, by having an experience, but we know that that experience for our learners or even for us as instructors can be uncomfortable. So it's almost like something someone has to go through to learn the ultimate lesson, but getting through it will be difficult. Um, those are scary things to have to put other people in and to be shepherding them through that journey. Either of you have a good example of a of an uncomfortable learning situation that you've put people through or been through yourself? I've got a really simple one to lead into yours, Anita, which I'm sure must be good, but but it was a first year group, group, group of first year medical students and it was teaching the cardiovascular uh, uh, exam and the lung exam. And, um, and um, I had a male student who, uh, this is like the first time he ever held a stethoscope, I think. And uh, 
And so he was going to examine the back of a female student, fellow student, you know, it was female. And he was just getting ready. And then he looked up at me and he said, this is so uncomfortable uh, <laughs> to be this close. Um, and, and to just walk him through that. And of course he did fine. And, uh, uh, is in practice now <laughs> with things. Uh, but even little things that to just nudge over the edge. Yeah, that physical closeness and intimacy that, of course, is required for the practice of medicine. I, I had never thought about that as being an uncomfortable thing for, for a new student. But of course it is. Um, it's uncomfortable in our daily lives to be that close to someone we don't have a, a sort of intimate relationship with. Mm-hmm. And you hear the stories too. Like you get, you get uh, sort of these confessions of like, maybe they haven't told anybody else or they've been avoiding it or it's embarrassing or you have to like create that space that we call it rapport um, to be receiving of that information. And like, it's beyond the like checkbox of um, it's sort of that leap from I'm learning how to, to ask these questions and taking a history. I'm, you know, a person that they trust to share, you know, it's really profound. And uh, like to be in that, that role, that responsibility of, of like holding a life is very scary. And like, personally, like what happened to me, it was like July 1st of intern year, which everybody knows, like that is not a day to go to the hospital because that's when all the new interns come in and all the seniors have graduated and everybody's been short staffed for a couple of weeks. And they're just going to put you in there to, at least this was in the olden days, you know, great deal of responsibility is placed upon you. And um, I was I was in an, an environment that that was sort of hostile to like people stepping into that space, but like they threw all the responsibility on you, but didn't want to like respect you for for doing it. They would like make you wrong and like say you're you're not good enough, and um, and we're going to show you why. <laughs> so. No wonder I only last there a year because <laughs> I was like, this sucks. But uh, July 1st, you know, in the morning we're doing, I'm doing it. I'm supposed to go into a C-section with my, my chief resident who's like sort of, you know, uh, taking me under his wing. And so I'm in there and like he, like this patient's awake because, you know, they get a, they get like a spinal, right? So they're like awake and they're having their babies. He hands me the knife across and he's like, go. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, what? <laughs> I'm doing this? I haven't been brief. You know, he's like, no, go. And I'm like, it just seemed wildly inappropriate and like, like not fair to the patient and not fair to me, but it was just like, he just had to like kind of talk me through it. And it was horrifying. I remember exactly how it felt to this day. And it was like, these guys are beyond hardcore I don't know so what was the what was the outcome for you Anita personally and professionally from that really uncomfortable and, and difficult learning situation it was so uncomfortable I mean it's not like I hadn't been in a situation where I you know 
been first assist or whatever in that type of procedure, but I had never been surgeon. And some would argue that it was an inappropriate place to put me. And I think it was, the purpose was to make me squirm, but in a way that was like really unsafe for the patient. Right. And so that was a, that was an introduction to the culture of this, this environment. And, um, I didn't last there. Are there ways in which that experience has, has guided you in your career to help make things less scary for others in, in similar situations? Yeah, because now I'm in, I mean, in the role in medical education is, I mean, I share that story and, and I think there's more oversight and onboarding. So when we do, um, you know, I talk to them about, okay, this is what you're going, you know, this is a C-section. This is what to our undergraduate medical students who are, who are first assist on, in the, the departments where they're going to be because they're not, uh, typically in a residency kind of environment. They're in like private hospital practice environment. I show them videos. I talk to them about, we do like a, like a show and tell touch and feel like these are the instruments and these are what they're using. And this is like very intentional about changing this type of retractor to this one. And this is why, and like, notice how it looks different. And, um, so now we're going to practice, we're going to have these models and then you're going to do these, uh, maneuvers just as if you were a surgeon and your partner across is going to like show you the right instruments that you're going to use. And they're going to, I'm going to show you how to like retract and like optimize. So it's like a very stepwise, you know, orientation to like this very, very common surgery that hundred percent they're all going to see because like over a third of deliveries are C-sections and how to, you know, make sure that they're in a space that um, they're at least somewhat introduced to before they have to like gown up. Yeah. I just try to have a, a more, and same thing with like pelvic exams, like this is a speculum. This is how you hold it. This is, you know, language to use. These are, you know, it's plastic models, right. Before they, you know, practice on, on like live humans. Can I just, uh, one, not quite so dramatic, Anita, but, um, um, I, uh, it was a uh, was a preceptor with a student rotating through my office, and um, she'd been there for uh, she's going into the second week, so she knew a little bit about how the office ran and what we talked about, and uh, got a call from a local TV station that they for some reason wanted an interview um, at lunchtime uh, uh, <laughs> to be recorded, and um, because they they and and so. I, I talked to the student. I says, "Well, let's. We're going to be going over to the local TV station." And um, she says, "Well, I'll get a good spot, you know, far away from the camera." And I could just see the nervousness kind of building. And and of course, I love to try to get people out in front and let them, you know, be part of all that. Um, and and so I said, "Well, you don't have to do this, of course. Uh, you don't have to be part of that. But let's just say, just in case you were part of that, what would we say?" And so we kind of reviewed the questions that would be coming up about the topic, you know, and things like that. And and um, we got to the studio and it was kind of fun to watch the student migrate from back behind the cameras to sort of even with the cameras. And pretty soon it was like 
she's up the, behind the desk and I was off to the side a little bit. And uh, she's from our local area and like her family was going to be watching this. And, and she just just was a rock star. I mean, she did the whole interview, basically. That's awesome. Uh, and we, we talked afterwards about how going from that position of being uncomfortable. And then, you know, it was one of the most gratifying things as a teacher to help somebody recognize their anxiety and then equip them and then give them a chance to uh, to shine. That's like managing up, Jim. Good for you. I love that as a lesson for this, right? Finding, giving someone a chance to shine, because I think that's reflected in what you just described, Jim, and, and Anita, I think for you, it's the piece that was missing probably from that very early experience, that that wasn't a, a position where you felt like you were prepared to succeed in there. Oh, no, not at all. Like they were, it was like actively trying to like shoot you down. I think it's probably good advice for teaching in general, as you're introducing a new concept, something that may be difficult or stressful or worrisome for students finding ways for them to get those early successes and to build that confidence and comfort uh, before rolling them into something more. In in closing, I, you know, when somebody, I, I've gotten this question a few times of like, you know, what advice would you give me? Like what heading into like residency or practice or, you know, for somebody our age, so like, you know, somebody, a learner in their like twenties and, you know, almost uniformly after I think for a little bit, it's like, choose your people well know what you know who you're going to be working with and in like you have a choice so it's not only like in your you know choosing your partner well so who your like life partner is that's going to work with you support you like be with you like honestly um but also your like the culture you're stepping into the practice the like know who's there and what they value um that's, you know, advice I continue, I continue to give. We probably can't choose to avoid all uncomfortable learning situations. So maximize those things we do have choice over. Yeah, for sure. Well, we hope for all our listeners, we have lifted you out of any teaching fears that you might have in general, or perhaps specific to this Halloween season. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking with you, Jim. I'm so glad you were able to join us. My pleasure. Well, on behalf of Anita Public anderson and Jim Warpinski, I'm Michael Brown. Thank you so much for listening to Medical Education Matters. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.